I think the most successful relationships we have are the ones where the internal team have, have done, they've either done the work, they've kind of primed the key decision makers and people who are um, going to be in these conversations with what to expect. And I think that's things like, you know, probably typical to most um, scenarios to, you know, be open-minded about um, solutions that you didn't expect or, you know, not going in thinking that you have it figured out and being open to exploration and, and surprises and, and things that can kind of come along the way. Um, I think that that part of it is a huge, um, huge plus in terms of the, the more successful relationships. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify, to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Brent Couchman. Brent is a graphic designer, creative director, and founder at Monica, a brand design studio in San Francisco. They work with an international team that connects future thinking brands to today's challenges and communities. The small firm has worked with giants like Oculus, Coca-Cola, Google, Sonos, and Facebook, to name a few. We talk about designing for a company as large as Facebook, how these big companies can leverage niche studios, and Brent's theory on why everything does not need a brand. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Brent. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Now, I'd love to ask you about your your Facebook, the the Oculus project. You know, how did you how did you go about sort of doing that? Because it's not only one big company; it's also another. You know, there's sort of two entities that you're playing with. And how do you how did you go about that project? And and how did you balance all of that stuff together? Yeah, um, that was that was the one we've been working with them for. We're working with Facebook for a long time. Um, Josh Higgins, who I think is now head of, uh, or I can't remember what his title is, but he's he's high up there in uh, Facebook Reality Labs, which is the division that handles all of Facebook's um, hardware. So um, currently Oculus and then Portal as well. And so we've been working with Josh for years, probably seven years now. Kind of started out small and then um, you know got bigger and bigger projects. So we had been pretty familiar with what Facebook was doing in terms of um, you know the brands and kind of bringing in uh, uh, Oculus or Instagram, these other brands that they're that are under Facebook now, um, part of the Facebook family. And so this one with Oculus, um, they had they had bought Oculus. I can't remember what year that was, but kept most of the visual identity that was there intact and just kind of built on that. But had never really taken. I think a holistic look at what the brand um, the brand could be um, past that kind of evolution of what they previously had. 
So the, I guess the impetus for the project was the launch of the Quest 2, which is out now. And the, the big push at the time, kind of kicking things off, was the packaging and figuring that out. And then the conversation went to, you know, looking at the entire visual identity. So I think because we had been working with Facebook over the years and had a really um, good understanding of what they were trying to do as a brand, and then, you know, kind of having that relationship with um, Josh and Tamu, who was the creative director, um, you know, just kind of like worked out where, you, again, even though we were a small team, able to, to work directly with them and become part of the group. Um, we had, you know, multiple check-ins every week. We have, you know, work sessions. Um, this is, this is before COVID. So in the studio, you know, have the boards filled with all kinds of work and exploration. And it was really loose and collaborative. And, um, so again, without that, that key kind of relationship with the internal team and then having like a really good, um, you know, strategic foundation for us to work with and, and, you know, collaborate on. You know, that wouldn't wouldn't have been possible. So and I think, you know, then working with a bigger agency, I know bigger agencies try to do this. I just don't think that they can do it as well as um, a small dedicated team. So hopefully I answered your question in there somewhere. Right. So so if you you know if you were working in a bigger company and you wanted to engage with a smaller design team, like what what are the things that those really good clients like like the team at Facebook do? to allow you to add the the kind of the reason you're there that special source that you know to sort of almost scratch the itch that they have because i think a lot of times businesses pull in these people and then drown them in process or whatever that is and then they actually don't end up getting out the result that they they need so if if someone was listening to this and they were sitting in one of those companies how 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 would you sort of advise them to engage with a smaller creative team um, to get the best out of them? Yeah, I think that, that's a great question. I think the most successful relationships we have are the ones where the internal team have, have done, they've either done the work, they've kind of primed the key decision makers and people who are um, going to be in these conversations with what to expect. And I think that's things like, you know, probably typical to most um, scenarios to you know be open-minded about um, solutions that you didn't expect, or you know not going in thinking that you have it figured out, and be open to exploration and and surprises and and things that can kind of come along the way. Um, I think that that part of it is a huge um, huge plus in terms of the the more successful relationships. And I think you know having the team, the the working team. Uh, be the right mix. So it's like, it can't be every designer who works there. You know, there's obviously um, logistical issues there, but just like having, having too much feedback is, or, or too many different voices is obviously a, a challenge. So you know, having the right team, if it's like a lead designer and creative director and, you know, basically like as few people as possible, but who are very knowledgeable about the brand and very knowledgeable about, the system that needs to be in place. Um, I think those are the two really crucial um, aspects. And then kind of jumping off that first one, I think, yeah, just like being open to, um, you know, what, what happens. And that's both on the um, creative exploration side where we're, maybe we're in a territory that we didn't expect and it's kind of off brief, but 
you know, through this process, something is learned through that kind of, um, you know, meandering off the path and then we can kind of bring it back. And so I think those, those are the, the kind of things that we look for and, um, that sort of set up that, that seems to work best for us. Yeah. It seems that big teams is always a challenge, especially in the larger sort of corporate corporate world. It seems like covering yourself or, or seemingly covering yourself by having everyone in the room kind of makes you safer as opposed to clients who are just really willing to sort of take a step and take a leap. Um, and it's always interesting to, when you watch any of the kind of ad shows or any of those things where they're kind of unpacking the best work that's ever been done, uh-huh. there's always that thing. There was a client who just trusted in a way they were like, this is my, this is my framework. This is what you have to fit into within that. Do whatever the hell you uh-huh. see fit and, and make amazing work as opposed to exactly like you say, including a hundred people and trying to please everyone and right. not going anywhere. Sort of super interesting. Yeah. Well, another aspect of that is that there, there might be a hundred people who are involved, but it's, you know, being strategic about how, they're involved. So for instance, um, you know, we, we might have to have those one-on-one conversations with the entire team, but it doesn't have to happen or, or it should happen in a way that's, that makes sense and is, you know, efficient for what we're trying to do. So if we need to have, you know, key conversations with different leaders in different, um, you know, parts of the company before we start any work, you know, we're building trust there. We're building a relationship. There's, things we can pull from those conversations and we use to present. So there's ways around like that, that aspect and then things that we can do to partner with um, clients to, to make those, those sort of situations easier. But for that core kind of working team, it definitely helps to have um, that trust. And, and it might be something we have to kind of build over time, like a few months in versus mm. right away. And that's where like those longer, projects and longer relationships um, really seem to work out. So how do you, how do you pick your clients? You've got a small team. Um, so obviously your resources is what it is. Like how do you choose who to work with? Cause if you look at some of the work you, you feature this, there's, there's obviously really big companies, but then there's also startups who just sort of kicking it off. How do you choose which project to, to, spend your time on and and what do you look for in that yeah um yeah i'd say the, the two major things maybe there's three um the first is the yeah the relationship that i've been talking about if, if we get along with the team if, if we feel like they have sort of a um we're almost looking for like a even temperament or uh someone who kind of like maybe matches our our general I'm, I'm explaining this terribly, but general vibe is just like pretty laid back. We're not, um, we're not like hardcore salespeople. We're not trying to like force any work on you that, that we don't, you know, that we believe in, but maybe you don't, you know, it's more about kind of finding, um, solutions together. And so having a group of people that we could just sit down and have lunch with or, or go out for drinks with and kind of spend time with is really important for us. Um, there's, there's something I always thought, in fact, it may have been like within the first year that I started Moniker, um, 
this idea that if I lay down at night and I close my eyes and that client is like in my head, then it's not a good client. Like I don't, I don't want anyone that's just, you know, inter- interrupting my um, sleep or dreams or keeping me from sleeping. So we kind of like tend towards like, you know, pretty um, uh, laid back or like, um, I'm just, I know I'm doing a terrible job here, but hopefully that's kind of coming across. So that, that relationship is part of it. Of course, the industry and what the actual project is, is important. We're not, um, you know, we're not doing things for oil companies or, you know, uh, different brands that we don't believe in what they're doing. And in fact, I think in general, we're trying to pivot even more to working with brands that we, um, that we believe in what they're doing and are, are doing positive things for the world. So that's another big piece of it. But there's times where we'll take on a project that maybe we have less interest in personally, but we really like the team and it could be a lot of fun. And I think those are um, interesting just because we'll maybe find a solution that is more exciting and more interesting just because of that, just the excitement from the client and kind of, uh, you know, being in a place that we didn't really expect ourselves to be. Um, but I think those are the two main drivers. I mean, and the other side of things is sometimes it is sort of a, um, a financial decision. Like, you know, we'll work with, uh, you know, a bunch of startups at one time, you know, because it's easier to kind of get in and like help them with what they need during that time. It works for us in terms of um, building and kind of like aligning in those things. And we get to work on like a variety of projects all in a short time, really quick. So I think just being a little bit more nimble and adaptable and, and in that way is something else that kind of gives us some energy and um, you know, kind of changes things up for us. Right. So, so, you know, you talked a lot about kind of being open and collaborative. Like, how do you set the project up? How do you, how do you agree on what the end goal is um, with these teams to to have that open collaboration? Yeah. Well, we're always working to pretty specific deliverables, so that part is easy. We, we kind of know where we're going, um, and I think yeah, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of teams and clients in general want to have some level of this open and collaborative uh, process. So, and that, that is like, it, it's really dependent on the team. Some people mean that they just want to be part of some of the conversations along the way. And it's almost more like a traditional uh, setup in terms of process where you're, we're doing the work, we come and present it, we have discussions, and then we kind of do refinements or you know, continue to explore. So, so it can mean something that's very traditional in terms of the design agency client relationship. On the opposite end of the spectrum is where it's you know very open and collaborative. It's daily um, conversations, daily check-ins on Slack and Figma, um, those kind of collaborative tools that everyone is familiar with now. And part of it is kind of like figuring out along the way. We might talk about a few scenarios and what tools people use internally and how we can kind of align those. But it's usually something that kind of you find a rhythm or find your kind of stride a little bit into the process. So maybe you thought that the the Slack was going to be a good idea, but it's become cumbersome or there's times where we don't use Slack as much and it becomes more of the video chats or something like that. So we just try to be, you know, as long as we have that clear goal of what we're trying to accomplish and we're, you know, we're both on the same page about what that 
needs to be in, in getting there. We just try to be kind of, um, yeah, flexible and, and fluid on, on how to get there and kind of figure it out together. So, so I suppose at this point in the conversation, I'd love to ask you, you've worked on all these different brands from startups to, to Minute Maid to, to Oculus. Uh, you know, wh- what, do you, what role do you think brands play in society? Like, like what is a brand and, and what role do you think they have to sort of contribute towards humanity and our culture? Yeah, that, that's a tough question. Um, and it, I feel like there's a lot of different ways to answer it that are relevant to what we do. You know, I'd say the, the thing that we're noticing the most or that, that seems to be the struggle with most companies that we work with is this kind of balance between the old school approach, which is to have your corporation be this sort of shield or facade and you're, um, you're kind of like hiding behind it in a way and using the kind of like um, the separation there, lack of transparency as a way to shield you know, the employees or decision-making the things that are kind of like affecting people's everyday lives. And that that's just like deteriorating, not only with uh, brands, but institutions, like like everything that we see happening, um, I, I assume across the world, but definitely here in the US in terms of um, what's happening socially. Uh, I think that's kind of affecting um, what brands do and how they approach um, communication and how they operate, their decision-making, that kind of thing. So. I think it's about transparency and how, um, like everyone, everyone that we come to, everyone we talk to, they have their brand pillars or brand values, and across the board, you know, human is part of that. And it's you know, there's a conversation about whether you can, whether you can have that, and it's an actual you know effective differentiator or or something that really makes your company unique. But the fact that they all have that, I feel like shows that people are you know, almost desperately trying to figure out how they can operate in these companies and these brands and still be human and still um, be accountable and, you know, make decisions that are good for, you know, their kind of fellow humans. So I think I'm, I'm probably kind of veering off a little bit, but I do think there's something interesting about this. And I do think that's where things are headed, where there's much more transparency already. There's much more accountability with um, what's happening in social media and the access we have to people um, in terms of communication in, in those companies. So I, I see that being at some point, there's this sort of like transition where the human human aspect is what's out there more and the kind of corporate old school um, part of it is just either gone or it's in the background and less important. And I think those are the brands that are going to be, you know, kind of winning and um, and just more present in people's lives and more kind of endeared by um, people in general. Hopefully, that makes sense. It does. So, how how are you guiding your your clients towards this? I know you were talking that you're trying to sort of pivot your business more towards working on on brands that are making a difference or companies that are making a difference. Um, you know, how are you? helping shape that narrative inside some of these these places yeah i mean it's definitely a small um i guess uh or our impact i think would be small but kind of one of those things where it feels like it's rippling out and it's for us it's just been about starting starting conversations or being involved in those conversations 
And it's, it's not like we're, you know, we say something and they're like, oh yeah, we weren't thinking about that. You know, the people at these companies are thinking about all the things that are happening, you know, as much as um, people on the outside, their customers and consumers. It's just, I think the, the, you know, the conversations that are happening are about like, what can you do? Do you stay with a company who um, might be making decisions that are different than, than you'd make? And do you try to, ch- you know, affect that change from the inside? And so for us, that, that's part of the conversation is do we, um, do we stick in here with these people that we know who are, are great people who are passionate about, um, you know, helping people in general and making people's lives better? And sort of stay the course and try to make these small changes, or you know, do we find clients whose entire businesses um, you know built around that? So it's definitely something that we're you know trying to figure out. But I think, like everything, those kind of real conversations are where it happens. Whether that's um, you know one on one and like those actual client meetings, or if it's kind of off to the side. I think you know, like I mentioned the. The way that we're set up where we have, you know, more um, kind of close relationships with clients allows for some of those more real conversations. So I think that's where it start, starts. And then on the other side of things, we are trying to, you know, make a uh, all in, any any and all sort of outreach that we do in these areas where we feel like there's much more impact and there's much more opportunity to use design to tell these stories that either are really complex and, and hard for people to understand or they're just not areas where people are, are telling those stories and using design to, to really make a big difference. So we're kind of trying to tag it from, from both sides. I love that. And it allows me to sort of sneak in the, my next question. So in our pre-call, you were talking about, you know, you, you, well, yeah, you're talking about things that need to, you know, stories that are not being told that are potentially complex or difficult for people to understand. So therefore they just overlook them. But uh, the one thing you said that really stuck with me is like, does everything need a brand? Does everything need to be designed? Does everything need to look really polished and slick? And and the the story you told was around the the Hillary Clinton brand. I'd love to hear your thoughts of that again. Yeah, yeah. This is. Um, th- th- I feel like this this idea kind of shows up in different ways. Um, one one. We're talking about the original idea that we mentioned. I think uh, I listened to a talk. I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about the Hillary, um, you know, brand campaign or the, the visual identity that was created for Hillary's run. And I think there was some kind of discussion around the idea that maybe having this like really consistent, though flexible design system, which was beautiful and obviously very well executed and um, everyone's, you know, hearts and minds are in the right place for that. But maybe having that with um, with the kind of uh, the climate of or the political climate, yeah, was, was just not not the right fit for it. Maybe maybe like opening up the brand where um, it wasn't as consistent and it was less kind of rehearsed or polished um, would have been a plus in this scenario. And so that to me kind of like applies in a lot of places. Like people come to us and they think they need to design a solution, they need a logo or a visual identity and, and all these aspects. But maybe what they really need is just like a really, you know, great kind of strategic 
um, brand story. And then from that, you can have, like we were talking about previously, like there's lots of conversations that can come through that. Maybe it's, um, you know, more content that's uh, less about the design and the aesthetic part of it and more about, you know, that story you're telling. So the the latest kind of example I can think of that we're kind of in, in talks about now is um, related to like the vaccinations and like, how do you, how do you approach that? If you come to a certain design studio, they're going to have a graphic design solution for it, but maybe that's not what's necessary. Maybe it's more about, you know, um, I don't know what, what the solution is, but something, something that maybe um, a place like Moniker wouldn't necessarily, you know, show off or have as the capabilities on our um, website, but would be like the best thing for that project. So um, it's kind of like a, a loose idea that seems to be coming up more and more as there's more access to design. It almost seems like at some point, not designing is going to be a differentiator like designing your entire brand and having a really um, great visual identity from the start used to be. It's almost like, yeah, if if you launch without all that stuff, it would stand out maybe more than something that's kind of been um, over-designed and, and totally figured out. So anyways, it's, it's a very loose idea, but hopefully there's something there that kind of makes sense in terms of that idea. I mean, I resonate that uh, with that. I think, you know, when, when I was growing up, there were all these sort of subcultures um, and the subcultures were often created by people who didn't have access to kind of high-end production or high-end design. They were just making stuff because they needed to make stuff and each one was super distinct and super unique. And it feels now a little bit like we live in a in a time where all of the big Hollywood studios are just looking back. They're all looking stranger things, you know, all of this like ghostbusters. They're just trying to remake anything from then as opposed to sort of trying to create now. And then you look at things like TikTok and YouTube and, and the level of polish in the people who are successful is just so unobtainable to so many people that it feels almost alienating. Like there's no way, that, you know, the, what's his name? Logan Paul, you know, he's got like five cameras, each $20,000 plus and a whole editing team and a whole production team. And that's sort of now what people are measuring themselves against. Um, and it's almost feels like it might be stopping the people who were just sort of creating stuff because they had something to say or just wanted to share something. Right. Yeah. It is interesting though, because on the flip side there, there are people who um, you would never, because they don't have access to that that level, like you know, like you said, like the five cameras and the producers and, and that whole team. Um, because of the platforms, those people can kind of have a voice. Like, like on, I'm thinking of this um, guy that I follow on YouTube, who I think he's like a classically trained composer who listens to modern music and kind of like talks about it through the lens of, um, you know, fundamental, fundamental music theory and that kind of thing. But anyway, so this is guy kind of like sitting, I don't, I don't know too much about him, but he's just kind of like sitting in his laptop, listening to music and kind of talking about it. And he has an audience. So there's something like with those tools sort of, you know, in a way democratizing that, that aspect of it and giving people more, um, more of a platform, even if they don't have, the means. So it's definitely interesting 
um, how you kind of see both of those extremes. Hmm. It's like highly polished and highly unpolished at the same time. I guess for me, the the thing that makes it all, I think the thing that makes it work is when it, it sits with people. You know, I think the Hillary example was an interesting one because she was already sort of coming off the back foot of a quite a negative perception of her. And then the slick polish gave it more of a corporate feel, mm-hmm. therefore sort of almost extending that and pulling people away from her where, um, you know, there's that um, girl, Greta Turnberg, you know, who's kind of changed the way people think about climate change, you know, and she's done it with like a, a hand-drawn sign, but that it fits her personality beautifully. Like I think if she'd shown up with beautifully printed, perfectly executed things, it wouldn't have necessarily had the same sort right. of impact. Yep, exactly. It's, 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 Kind of goes back to that what we talked about earlier, the like brands and transparency and what's happening with institutions. There's a um, there's a familiarity with that kind of corporate approach of you know giving everything this polish and maybe veneer, and it's obviously it's been misused, and so that you know people are just kind of savvy to that. So I think that's where, like you said, the Greta stands out um, because of the lack of that it's, it feels real. It feels like she's a real person with real um, motivations and it's, it's authentic. Whereas, you know, the, the kind of Hillary campaign, and it's, it's definitely not that that work was not authentic or real or any of those things. I think it's just like the world we live in where people are used to this and, and kind of, um, you know, not trusting in general, that kind of uh, approach. Mm. Yeah, super interesting. I think it's also, uh, I guess, the pressures on companies and brands, you know, with in this sort of Instagram sort of world, everyone's seeing the stuff all the time. It's filling everyone's feed. So the pressures to do it and you see all of the, I mean, I, I, my, my pet thing at the moment is to watch the car companies. They're just falling one, one after the other. They're just going for a simplified line logo. And it's just happening to one. I think Renault did it the other day. They're now like one of the last ones. So everyone went like super glossy in the nineties. Now everyone's going super minimal. And it's, I think just pressure of all this visual stuff that's hitting everyone all the time. And they feel like they have to have to kind of do it. And then you think about the brands that, that have stayed and, and have this like weight to them over time. It's, they so often not, of the trend or of the time, you know, they, they've, right. they've broken a mold or they've picked something that's truly theirs and then they've just held it for a long time. And that's what's ultimately built up the, the meaning and the association as opposed to, you know, if you look at all the car companies now, if you threw them all up on one thing, they'd all kind of look the same and their messaging is all going to be around you know, we're going into a future with electricity and digital and, you know, we're kind of looking forward to the future. But now when I look at all of them, they're all just sort of standing in a line looking exactly the same. Um, Um, Yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, with, with car companies, it feels like there's, uh, maybe always been sort of, a a bandwagon approach there, but, um, you see like what Tesla's doing and not even, not even with, not even with design, like traditional brand identity or visual identity work. It's like the, 
the approach is that, you know, Elon is kind of the brand and it's like, um, you know, an unofficial spokesperson. It was such a different approach. And that, that's what stands out about it is that they've, they've kind of like, um, you know, piggyback or it's, it's just like naturally come from his personality and his, his approach to things. And um, they just have a different perspective on that. But, you know, it's so hard to have that kind of singularity when you don't have someone like Elon Musk. Um, but there's other brands that do it too. Like, like Coca-Cola, you know, has stayed true to their kind of core identity over the years. And it's, it's kind of like gotten off in a few places here and there, but like the work that, um, uh, James Somerville, when we were working with Coke and, and their teams, he was the head of design there. And um, the work that they did to kind of like realign to the really core elements of what made Coke Coke, not just visually, but just uh, tonally and personality wise, you know, that that's going to last, you know, could, could last for forever. They're going to be going through a lot of unique challenges or are going through unique challenges with um, that kind of transparency thing that we talked about previously. But um, that, that like foundation is super important. And, and like companies we work with now, and it's really hard to have that kind of vision and, and build for that future. But if, if we can kind of make through it, it's really, really worth it. Yeah. I mean, I think you said something really powerful there. It's like, what makes Coke Coke? And I think if you can, as a brand, even if you're small, even if you're just starting, you know, if you can figure that out, if you can figure out what makes us, us and not, what have we seen that looks appealing to us that we want to to almost wear um, is is a slightly different way of taking it. I mean, you know, coming back to Tesla, they had that battery day, I think it was about six months ago, where they were talking about batteries. Now, this is probably the most boring subject on earth. Right. And yet somehow they positioned it. They were like, well, you know, if we get this right and we're going to bend the material and we're going to stuff some things in here and we're going to do this and we're going to load this up and blah, 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 blah. And if we pull off these four things, then it means we can power the entire world using like eight batteries. Right. You know, suddenly everyone's like, this is amazing, you know, battery technology. Um, And what interests me is that Nissan makes more cars in a month than electric cars in a month than Tesla makes an entire year. Right. And yet Nissan gets zero of the the kind of glory and the fame and Tesla gets it all. So if you actually measure it in how many cars are they making, you know, how many people are driving those, how many countries are they in Tesla's, you know, by those metrics is a flop, but they're very good at kind of taking our attention. And I think the way they do it is exactly like you say, they, they know what makes Tesla Tesla. And right. they know what makes SpaceX SpaceX, and they're not trying to pretend to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, there's a great lesson in that. And you know, I think Coca-Cola is also a master at this. Like they've they've owned a piece of our mind and our heart for like decades, right. which very few brands have actually effectively managed to to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think um, there's something about like, like I, haven't, I haven't felt this for maybe my entire career until the last couple of years. And it's probably COVID related in some ways, but how, how everything was, a lot of changes were accelerated because of COVID. Um, but I've never felt like there are more opportunities to, to stand out and to, to have that kind of unique voice than there are right now. And I think it's because 
like what we're talking about, like like Tesla compared to Nissan or um, Coca-Cola compared to you know anyone else. Like if you take what's happening in cryptocurrency and how there's there's no one who's having the battery day and trying to explain if we can get this right with this technology and batteries, then this could affect everything that we do in the future. And you know, here's here's like painting a picture and getting people excited about that. You know, that's like the potential for um, cryptocurrency and, and what different companies are doing there. Um, if you listen to, I can't remember his full name, uh, Vitaly, the uh, Ethereum um, inventor, or uh, whatever his title is, um, in, in, in kind of explaining what he sees as the future of finance and the opportunities there, like it's such a rich and compelling and futuristic and crazy and amazing world and potential there. But it's like it's hidden under all this um, this technical jargon and math, and the there's just like a huge story to be told there that, that is not being told. And so, anyways, it just feels like there's all kinds of opportunities right now with with how fast things are changing and all these new technologies. It really does feel like um, you know things are happening fast, and, and now is kind of the time to get in there with a unique point of view and sort of. Uh, put a stake in the ground. Uh, I I couldn't agree more. I think you know if you look at uh, what's that that theory that it takes twenty one days to form a habit. It's been one year since South Africa went into lockdown, so it's one year. That's three hundred and sixty five days that people have had an opportunity to break their patterns. So I think we've had this is our opportunity now that all the patterns have been disrupted. Everyone's the way they're buying, the way they're thinking, the way they're behaving, the way, you know, all of these things are sort of up for grabs. And, and I fully agree that brands that can can step out in a, in a way that they're telling something interesting that people can care about, you know, that, that it lets them sort of stand out um, is, is such an opportunity. And it's probably not one that's going to come along again in, you know, in decades. Right. Hopefully not like COVID at least. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um yeah so so i guess you know to to wrap up i'd love to ask you you know you've you've talked about this idea of kind of small teams doing big work and you've talked about collaboration and now now there's this opportunity for for brands to or companies to sort of rethink about how they how they sort of stepping out into the world and engaging with the world. Uh, like what are your, you know, if you could, if you could speak to these people, these people who own these brands, like what would you get them to think about, you know, as they sort of moving out there in the world, trying to build their brand, trying to kind of connect with people and, and potentially engaging with, with teams like yours to, to make that happen. Yeah. Um, sheesh. That's a, that's a, Tough question. Um, I mean, to me, it, it kind of goes back to that conversation we we're having, having about the transparency and there, you know, just, just again, from the conversation that we've been having, if, if people at all levels can have this conversation about the effects of their products and the, um, you know, almost like decide together that that's the like, 
the kind of greater good um, is what we should all be, you know, striving for. If, if I guess it's like if we can have those kind of conversations that start out small um, and have like real impact and in, in consumers or audiences or however you want to kind of frame that in people's lives, like I think I think that's what's what's crucial is like looking at sort of on the ground effects of these tools um, and thinking about. You know, maybe it's not best to be the um, the first the first kind of like uh, product to be in a certain space, or um, you know, the ramifications that kind of come with that. So I don't know. I think I mean I'm kind of rambling now. I'm not sure if I have a con- uh, full connected thought there. Um, but I think just kind of having that that level of um, not only transparency but accountability, be present in decision-making. I feel like that's, that's kind of key there. If that makes sense. Mm. It does. I think it's like, like what, what makes you, you. And I guess with transparency, it's, it's difficult to be transparent unless you're clear on who you are as a company and what's important to you. Like, I think it's, it's not just about making your, your financial records public. <laughs> you right. know, that's not right. the, the sort of level of transparency. It's saying like, this is who we are and this is what we, you know, and this is what's important to us. And that doesn't necessarily have to be altruistic or, or anything. It, it just needs to be who you are and yeah. you know, what's important to you. Yeah. I think that that's a, it's a hard conversation to have too, because it takes, it takes dedicated time and energy to really figure that out. You know, every, like I mentioned, we have a lot of, companies who come in and say, you know, here's our brand pillars and, and one of them is human and one of them is, uh, you know, um, optimistic or engaging. Yeah. We could probably rattle off what everyone is using. And it's not that those aren't, those aren't great. And those are, you know, things to aspire to, but it's not really, it can't, it can't be true for every company. You have to have a point of view and it, yeah, it takes time. It takes attention and focus. And, you know, it has, I think been difficult with everything going on um, with the COVID and, and socially and just across the board, like so much going on. So it's been hard to, I think, kind of get down to some of that, that truth that needs to happen. But I do think that once you get there, um, everything that's built on that, you know, becomes better and and people can get on board easier. People can um, support that um, more freely. So I do feel like that's, uh, kind of a key key part there. Mm. I mean, I think that's that's a great note to to end on. I think it is. I guess it's encouraging and challenging people to actually take that time and to actually sort of think about that and invest the time and energy in it because I think the return over time will be quite high. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, Brent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your time and and thank you for all the work that you're doing. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Ross. Appreciate you having me and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Right. And we'll catch you in the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, 
leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion. Reach out at www.nicework.co.za And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape. I think the most successful relationships we have are the ones where the internal team have, have done, they've, they've either done the work, they've kind of primed the key decision makers and people who are um, going to be in these conversations with what to expect. And I think that's things like, you know, probably typical to most um, scenarios to, you know, be open-minded about um, solutions that you didn't expect or, you know, not going in, Thinking that you have it figured out and being open to exploration and and surprises and and things that can kind of come along the way, um, I think that that part of it is a huge um, huge plus in terms of the the more successful relationships.